Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The International Criminal Court has ruled that it has jurisdiction to investigate potential war crimes in the Israeli-occupied West Bank and Gaza. The decision is indeed a historic one, but is there a meaningful prospect that it will deliver justice for Palestinian victims of Israeli aggression? Well, joining me now is Norman Finkelstein, author and scholar. Norman, welcome back to Pushback. Thank you for having me. What is your reaction to this ruling? Uh, initially, I was, uh, when I first received the news, uh, I was happy. I was actually happy, if you know the expression, I was happy to be proven wrong. Uh, I was not optimistic about the outcome of the current round in the case. And it seemed initially that I was mistaken However, as I read through the actual decision, uh, read it through to the end, particularly the, the last three paragraphs, uh, I was less optimistic. Actually, I'm still at this point, I'm quite pessimistic about the prospects. I think there's been a certain amount of misunderstanding about what the court actually ruled. How so? What is the misunderstanding? Um, I'm going to try to summarize in a few succinct sentences a, I wouldn't call it a complex case, I would just call it a protracted case. At this point, there's probably several thousand pages, at least several thousand pages of uh, public record on the case. The essence of the matter is as follows. The state of Palestine joins the ICC the technical term is it accesses the ICC in 2015, in early January 2015. Now that it's officially a member of the ICC, it has a right to uh, send a referral, a complaint to the ICC. And unsurprisingly, it files a complaint regarding Israeli crimes, uh, criminal uh, actions by the Israelis, which the ICC has jurisdiction over. So crimes in the West Bank, crimes in Jerusalem, and East Jerusalem, and crimes in Gaza. Once, does, uh, once the uh, state of Palestine uh, gives its, sends its referral to the ICC, a very protracted process goes on. As you can look from the calendar, it goes on for about five years. Then the chief prosecutor, Fatima Ben Suda, she issues her final opinion, and her opinion is that there is sufficient evidence that Israel has committed war crimes, and it's time to proceed officially to an investigation. There was a preliminary investigation stage, and she says, now it's time to proceed to an investigation. However, she says, even though she's convinced there is a state of Palestine, and although she's convinced that the territorial borders of that state are the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, she says, this is a contentious issue. 
whether or not there's actually a state of Palestine. She says, and whether or not the borders are what we call the occupied Palestinian territories. She says, this is a contentious issue. And she says, I'm going to let the court, the technical term is the pre-trial chamber, the PTC. So henceforth, I'll just refer to it as the PC, PTC. I'll let the PTC, the court decide whether or not there is a state of Palestine and whether or not its borders are the occupied Palestinian territories. So she now passes the ball, so to speak, to the PTC. The PTC enters into deliberations. The PTC says, we will take briefs from both sides, from the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side on whether or not Palestine is a state and what are its borders. The Israeli side submits a veritable avalanche of briefs from the top Jewish lawyers in the world, people like Malcolm Shaw, Ayel Ben-Venisti, uh, the top people. And they all say in chorus, in unison, there is no Palestinian state. And in any case, uh, this putative state of Palestine has no criminal jurisdiction. The Palestine side since submits not quite the same number, but quite a lot of briefs saying quite the contrary. The chief prosecutor is correct. There is a state and its borders are the occupied Palestinian territories. Now, in the course of the litigation, three issues come up, three main issues, not the only issues, but the three main issues. Number one, under what's called public international law, which is just under international law, is Palestine a state? Number two, according to the Rome Statute, which is the uh, rules and regulations of the International Criminal Court, according to the Rome Statute, is Palestine a state? And number three, whether or not uh, uh, the state of Palestine has criminal jurisdiction over Israelis in the occupied Palestinian territory. What the, what the um, pre-trial chamber, the PTC ruled was, we don't care about public international law. We're the ICC. We don't care what other institutions state are the requirements of a state. We only care about what the Rome Statute says. What are the rules and regulations to the Rome Statute? And the court says, under the Rome Statute, under the rules and regulations of the ICC, we have to agree Palestine is a state or there is a state of Palestine. Why? Simple reason. It's been a member of what's called the Assembly of States. That's all the states that belong to the ICC. It's been a member of the ICC Assembly of States for five years. It's conducted itself like a state. Everybody entered in relations with it inside the ICC as a state. 
it held notable positions in the ICC in the Assembly of States. It paid all its fees. It met all its responsibilities. So if you remember that famous definition about pornography, if it looks like it, if it talks like it, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, wobbles like a duck, it's a duck. So the ICC, uh, the pretrial chamber said, it's a state because that's how we've engaged with the state of Palestine the last five years. When I originally read through all of the um, briefs and the record, I thought clearly Palestine won on that point. There's no way that under the ICC rules and regulations, the Rome Statute, it's not a state. So I was confident they would win on that point. I wasn't sure whether the pretrial chamber would use the definition of public international law or they would use the definition of the Rome Statute. They said, we're setting aside public international law. We only care about the Rome Statute. What are the rules and regulations? Okay, so far, so good. However, when I read through the record, there was one sticking point, one serious sticking point. The Israelis were very careful when they cobbled together the Oslo Accord. They brought along the 1993 Oslo Accord. They brought along with them a battery of lawyers. Norman, just to explain that for people who don't know what that is, that is the accord between... I, I, I stopped myself because I realized, you know, it's already ancient history. Yeah. The accord was the agreement that Prime Minister Rabin entered into with a PLO chair Yasser Arafat, and it was presided over by Bill Clinton. The way most of your younger viewers will remember it is the famous handshake on the White House lawn. That's right. And that Oslo Accord created what's now called the Palestinian Authority and the whole apparatus that uh, uh, presides over the West Bank, no longer Gaza for the moment, but for the, over the West Bank, and it's Israel's main interlocutor uh, in terms of the daily, the daily life of the occupied territories. Um, so uh, Israel brings along this battery of lawyers to negotiate the, the terms of this agreement between the former PLO, which is now becoming the Palestinian Authority, and the State of Israel. Um, if you read Edward Said's, uh, Professor Edward Said, who uh, was the most distinguished Palestinian representative in North America, uh, if you read his memoir, not his memoirs, his accounts of the Oslo Accord, he makes the point that the Palestinians didn't bring any lawyers. There were no lawyers in the Palestinian team. And Israel brought along this huge battery of lawyers. Now, it's probably true to say that given the imbalance of power at the time, even if Palestinians did bring lawyers, they couldn't prevail against Israel because Israel had all the aces, all the kings, all the queens in the deck uh, at the negotiations. And the backing of the broker of the United States. 
that was the big ace. You know, that was the joker. If you look at the Oslo Accord, at several points, it makes a key provision. The provision says, if any Israeli soldier or civilian is accused of a crime in the occupied Palestinian territories, Israel has jurisdiction over that person. The Palestinians cannot prosecute an Israeli national. Okay, so you follow the news from Palestine occasionally, you will notice you've never heard of an instance where an Israeli went before a Palestinian court. It's never happened. You will notice that uh, the prosecutions are almost never undertaken, and when they are by Israel, uh, the person nine, uh, let's call it, a hundred, a uh, hundred and one times out of a hundred, goes free. But that's the rules of the game that Israel, quote unquote, negotiate with the Palestinians in Oslo. It's right there in the agreement several times, in the appendix, the appendices, in the body of the agreement. It's there. Israel has criminal jurisdiction. Now, when Palestine joins the International Criminal Court, the essence of joining the ICC is a state hands over criminal jurisdiction in war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. It hands over all of that criminal jurisdiction to the ICC. It says, we will transfer to you criminal, criminal jurisdiction in the case of war crimes, crimes against humanity, etc. The argument on the Israeli side was, you can't do that because you already handed over criminal jurisdiction to us. That's what the Oslo Accord says. You no longer have the right to transfer criminal jurisdiction of Israelis to the ICC because you already transferred that jurisdiction to Israel. It's in the accord. Now, the Israeli side had one possible argument, in my opinion, one possible argument. And that's the argument that under the Geneva Convention, the fourth Geneva Convention, which covers occupations, the fourth Geneva Convention knew from World War II when they drafted the convention, they knew from World War II, a, company, a country can occupy another country, put together a stooge regime, which came to be called a quizzling regime, and then got the quizzling regime to forfeit certain rights. So the drafters of the Fourth Geneva Convention, they recognized this as a real possibility, and so they have clauses and provisions in the Fourth Geneva Convention that say that if an occupied people is forced to um, forfeit certain of its basic rights, that forfeiture will not be recognized 
because that forfeiture occurred under duress. Did the Palestinian Authority make that argument? Yes. Yes, it made that argument. I would say, just to be uh, perfect, just to be clear, as I said, there were a mountain of briefs submitted on the Palestinian side. Some of them made these very contrived, convoluted arguments, which were completely unpersuasive. But the brief that was submitted by the state of Palestine itself made the argument that I just conveyed to you. And that argument obviously has a compelling aspect to it. The problem was the Oslo Accord technically ended in 1999. Remember, it was supposed to be a six-year transition period from 1993 to 1999. So we're talking about more than two decades ago. The Palestinians could easily have said, the Oslo Accord is over. We no longer recognize it. It's a dead letter. And therefore, we don't recognize your criminal jurisdiction. But they didn't do that. They have preserved, maintained, sustained, continued the Oslo Accord. Now, during the summer, the pretrial chamber sent a note of inquiry to the Palestinian Authority. The essence of the inquiry was do you or do you not still support? the Oslo Accord. The reason was obvious, Aaron, you could figure it out sitting there in your studio, because they were trying to figure out. If they said they no longer supported it, then the ICC has criminal jurisdiction. If they said they do support it, the ICC doesn't have uh, criminal jurisdiction. The Palestinian Authority tried to weasel its way out. It said, we'll decide whether or not we still honor the Oslo Accord when, if and when, Prime Minister Netanyahu annexes the West Bank. If you recall, at the time, uh, Netanyahu was supposed to commence the annexation in July. It was June or July, I can't recall now, I think July, but I could be wrong. June or July. And they said, if he, effectively what they said, if he annexes, Oslo Accords are dead. If he doesn't annex, Oslo Accords are still alive. He did annex, so they willfully, volitionally, they elected, they chose to keep the Oslo Accord alive. That means no criminal jurisdiction. So the way the case was originally presented to the PTC, I thought there would be one decision, either jurisdiction or no jurisdiction. What the court did was split the question in two. It said the ICC has uh, jurisdiction based on the Rome Statute. However, 
it sticks into the last three paragraphs of its decision, the one everybody's been acclaiming. It sticks into the last three paragraphs. We'll decide on whether the Oslo Accord does or doesn't preempt ICC intervention when it's time for the chief prosecutor to ask the state of Israel to present the um, accused before the court. And then Israel has the option of saying, when they're asked to present the accused war criminals, Israel has the option of saying, no, we're not going to present them because we have criminal jurisdiction. So if they do do that, I think Israel wins. I don't see how reading the accord and bearing in mind that the PA, the Palestinian Authority, agreed to continue it. I don't see how the um, uh, Palestinians can win. I didn't realize that they would split the decision. And that's why I thought they would lose. I knew they would win on the Rome statute. I wasn't sure how they would rule on whether uh, Palestine is a state under public international law. But I was pretty clear they couldn't win on Oslo unless they renounced the Oslo Agreement. And because all of their perks, all of their salaries, the good life, the VIP treatment of these, of this gerontocratic kleptocracy, that they would never renounce the Oslo Accord. So I was right, I was wrong, but I was also, in my opinion, I was right. Now, I know that took me a long time, but unfortunately, that's only half the problem. There's another half. The ICC operates under this principle called complementarity. Complementarity means that they only kick in if and when the state of accused war criminals does not carry out good faith investigations and prosecutions. In other words, if a person is accused of a war crime, and he is, say, the national of the United States. He has U.S. citizenship. If the U.S. prosecutes that person in good faith of committing a war crime, the ICC does not intervene. It only intervenes if the state itself doesn't carry out good faith negotiations. So this goes back to what you said before, where under the Oslo Accord, Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority forfeited the right to investigate Israelis for war crimes. That means that Israel has done it in a very uh, corrupt way, almost never punishing anyone. And if punishing someone, giving them a slap on the wrist. Do you think that the International Criminal Court would challenge Israel's claim that it conducted these investigations in good faith? That's the exact problem. You hit the nail on the head. What happened was, in the interim, there was another case having nothing to do with Israel-Palestine. 
It had to do with British, the crimes, the war crimes of British troops in Afghanistan. And that case was just decided by the chief prosecutor about two months ago, roughly two months ago. As you can imagine, the British carried out investigations of their soldiers, just like the way Israel carries out its investigations. There was no question from the documentary record and the chief prosecutor makes it clear, she wrote a 184-page decision. There's no question that, it, that the British troops in Afghanistan committed massive and really grotesque war crimes against the Afghani population. However, the chief prosecutor ruled that it cannot be said that the soldiers had impunity because the British carried out good faith negotiations, excuse me, good faith investigations. Even if only one person was convicted, the person got one year in jail, and the person was only convicted because earlier he had confessed to the crimes. It was a fluke. The chief prosecutor ruled those are good faith investigations, case closed. Well, by that standard, Israel's fake, sham, ridiculous, preposterous uh, investigations will, based on that precedent, they will pass muster with the court. The essence, okay. of, what, the essence of what Chief Prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda said in that Iraq decision, the British Iraq decision. The essence of what she said was- Afghanistan. Uh, excuse me, Afghanistan decision. The essence of what she said was, henceforth, no Western democratic state will be prosecuted before the ICC. All they have to do is carry out sham investigations and they will not be prosecuted. And now the ICC is officially what many African and third world countries said it was. It's not the International Criminal Court. It's the International Caucasian Court for the prosecution of sub-Saharan African savages. That's what the court is now officially. That's the meaning of that precedent. But for our purposes, the meaning of that precedent is there's now a second insurmountable, in my opinion, insurmountable um, uh, obstacle. The first was the Oslo Accord. The second now is the principle of complementarity. Okay, so given that, right, so, so given that, Norman, let me get your response to the Israeli government. Despite the case you've laid out where Israel has a lot of wiggle room uh, in this decision based on the uh, base, the capitulation of the Oslo Accord uh, and also the this principle that a state can claim that it carried out good faith uh, investigations of war crimes on its own. Still, the Israeli government is still freaking out about this ruling. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, called it an expression of 
pure anti-Semitism. When the ICC investigates Israel for fake war crimes, this is pure anti-Semitism. The court established to prevent atrocities like the Nazi Holocaust against the Jewish people is now targeting the one state of the Jewish people. So why is Israel reacting so harshly to this decision if, according to your argument, it doesn't have much to worry about? Well, I want to just say two points. The first point is, if you look at what the Israeli legal specialists are saying, like Professor Shani, S-H-A-U-N-Y, he currently heads, it's complete mockery, but he currently heads the UN Human Rights Committee. Now, the Human Rights Committee is not the same as the Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Committee is composed of uh, uh, expert legal experts dealing with issues pertaining to various covenants uh, signed by the uh, um, uh, member uh, members of the United Nations. One covenant of the, uh, of the United Nations. He's a very big guy, a complete crook, in my opinion. I've read his stuff. Uh, he said Israel has nothing to worry about because of the British precedent. He said it after I said it. All the conclusions I just conveyed to you, I arrived on my own immediately as I read the decision. I sat down, I read it, and then I noticed that the Israeli legal specialists are saying, no sweat, don't worry, we're fine, we're clear. The Israeli government, however, it's a different story. Why is it reacting in this way? In my opinion, two reasons. Number one, Netanyahu is up again for election. It's election time. He likes to present himself as the indispensable Duzex Machina, the instrument of God, who Israelis need in times of trial and tribulation when the whole world is against them. So he plays this theatrical game, gets a lot of coverage in Israel and around the world as he delivers his um, speech about how the whole world is against us. This is an outrage against the Jewish people. Uh, it's theater. It's theater. As I said many times, if there were an Academy Award for best dramatic performance by a country, Israel would win hands down every year. It's a theater, but it's election time theater. And the second reason, you may not like my language and you may dissent from my language, but the language has a special resonance for me and I will proceed to use it. Israel carries on like an ubermenschian state. How dare, how dare anyone accuse us of a war crime? How dare they? We're so above it. We're so immaculate. We're so perfect. They're all just anti-Semites. And at the bottom of it, they're jealous of us. They envy us. That's the mentality, the ubermenschian mentality. And so part of it, I think, is not theatrics. Part of it is an authentic expression of 
a very peculiar alt-right state. Israel is an alt-right state. However, it's an alt-right state with one peculiarity. Everywhere else in the world where there's an alt-right state in power, there is an opposition. You take Bolsonaro in Brazil. It's an alt-right state now. But there is the counterpoint, the Workers' Party. And you could see that across the board. Israel is the only alt-right state in the world where there's no opposition. There is a right. There is a more right. And there is an ultra-right. There is no center. And obviously, there's no left. There's just right, right, ultra-right. And so the whole country is intoxicated with this ubermenschian mentality, this outrage and indignation that any country in the world, any non-Jew, should dare criticize them on any account. So part of it's authentic and part of it's theater. So it has any political reality. I mean, none of it has any legal reality. Got it. They know they got this one in the back. I should say one other thing. Fatima Ben Suda's term of office is up in the summer. She's a chief ICC prosecutor. Yeah, the chief prosecutor, Fatima Ben Suda's term of office is up this summer. And already the US and Israel are manipulating behind the scenes to make sure that the next chief prosecutor will be a very pliant one. Not that she wasn't, she was very pliant. The reason she ruled against Israel, it's a long story, I'm not gonna go into it now. She was awful, she was horrible. You could see the true Fatima Bansuda when she let the British off. That's the real chief prosecutor. She let the British go and sent the message to all the Western countries, West assured, just carry out these crappy investigations and you're fine. Um, but they wanna make sure the next one is on the question of Israel and the U.S. even more pliant. So she'll be gone. So you mentioned this historical term. Uber mentioned the Nazi term to proclaim Aryan supremacy. I want to put you another term, which is especially salient now, which is apartheid. And just recently, the Israeli human rights group Betzelem, for the first time, declared Israel to be an apartheid regime, not just inside the occupied territories, but also inside the territory uh, of, of Israel's internationally recognized borders. And their statement was called a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. So in light of that and the fact that that's pretty undeniable for anybody with their eyes open, how then does a decision like the International Criminal Courts when it comes to jurisdiction over the occupied territories look now when really the question for some people is, do we even want to be making this distinction anymore between Israel proper and the occupied territories, when really the entire thing is, in the words of B'Tselem, an apartheid regime? Well, there are a number of things to say there. Number one, you will notice that B'Tselem used the same terminology as me. Ubermenschen means a superman. B'Tselem says it's a Jewish supremacist state. It's the same thing as what I'm saying. It's a state which values Jewish life 
over non-Jewish life, in this particular case, Palestinian life. It's a Jewish supremacist state, a state which attaches more value to Jews than non-Jews. I want to also say, I don't know personally the, exec the new executive director of uh, Betsam, Haggai El-Ad. He's an extremely bright young man. He got his PhD in physics from Harvard. And for whatever reason, I don't know because I don't know him personally, he set aside his professional career in physics and proceeded to head up the Betselem. That was a really courageous thing that he, along with Betselem, did. Because frankly, and I'm sure he knows it, he's put his life on the line. I think there's a good chance, I don't like to say, but I think there's a good chance he'll be assassinated. Um, and that was a, it was a, he crossed the Rubicon, he crossed the red line, he crossed the red line. And I would like to publicly <coughs> honor his principle and his courage uh, for doing that. Now, having said that, <coughs> there's now a kind of two paradigms. One paradigm is, if you go by, <coughs> excuse me, if you go by the ICC, there's a paradigm that says there's this state of Palestine, its borders are the occupied Palestinian territories, and the law of occupation applies, the Fourth Geneva Convention. That's one paradigm. That Selim's paradigm is there are no occupied Palestinian territories. There is no state of Palestine. There is one Jewish supremacist state that stretches from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. In my opinion, those two paradigms are not reconcilable. You can't, with one side of your mouth, say there's a state of Palestine, its borders are the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and it's being occupied by the state of Israel, and it is bound by the Geneva Conventions. And the other side of your mouth, you say there is one Jewish, one Jewish supremacist state, there is no longer an occupation, and this entity that calls itself the state of Palestine is the equivalent of Chief Budalezi and Kwezulu during the, during the apartheid era in South Africa, namely those were the Bantustans, there, not not uh, Kwezulu, but the other Bantustans, Traskai, Siskai, Botswana, they were officially recognized by South Africa beginning in 1976. They were officially recognized as independent states, but the international community, actually the U.S. was the only one who abstained, the international community said, no, those are not independent states. There's one state of South Africa, and it's a racist apartheid state. And I don't think, as I said, you can make a persuasive case that both paradigms can coexist. 
It's one or the other. And, you know, politically, strategically, it's a problem. Because as my good friend Alan Nairn, he wrote to me, he heard out my point of view, and he said, but are there any legal hooks for the Palestinians if you use the one-state paradigm? And that was, of course, because Alan is a very political person, that was the right political question to ask. Because if you use the occupied territories paradigm, you have this whole body of Fourth Geneva Convention-based law that puts Israel in a corner. You have that whole body of law. And for anybody who knows me, I have leaned on that record as it's been interpreted by the human rights organizations. I have leaned on that record in order to put Israel legally in a corner. I was going to say, Norman, for anyone who's followed your work, as I have uh, for more than two decades now, it would come as a surprise if you were to come out and support a position that would all of a sudden turn away from relying on international law. It's a very tough, it's a very tough call, Aaron, because you're going to lose a lot of the law. To take the case at hand, which we're talking about right now, you lose the case in uh, the ICC because there is no state of Palestine. That state of Palestine is as much a fiction as Transkai, Siskai, Botswana, Zulu were a fiction. You lose the case because the whole brief on the Palestinian side was Palestine's a state. And now Beth Selim is saying, it doesn't say it out loud, but it's right there. If you read through the lines, Palestine's not a state. It's a Bantu stand inside one state. Now, having said that, you ask yourself, which side do you go with? You go with the occupied Palestinian territory paradigm or the one state paradigm. My view is this, the best place to start in, in anything, not just politics, even in the marriage, the best place to start from the facts, the reality, and you work up from there. The reality is, you know it and I know it. There's only one state there. That state was established in 1967. Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. It never intended to return those territories. It's been around for 50, uh, 54 years now. The actual original state of Israel was only around for 20 years. So for 54 years, it's been one state from the, West, from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. Israel has made explicit, it leaves no grounds for guesswork. It's not leaving. Well, if it's occupied that territory for more than a half century, two and a half times 
the duration of the original state of Israel, which was only 20 years, and have made crystal clear across their political spectrum, across their political spectrum, from the center-right to the far-right to the ultra-right, which is their whole spectrum, that they're not leaving, then it's one state. And there's no state of Palestine. You know that, Aaron. I know that. I devote my whole adult life to trying to help in the exercise of the Palestinian right to self-determination in a state of Palestine. It didn't happen. That's why I stuck to it all these years, because it didn't happen. And now you're going to come along and tell me it did happen. I missed it. Somehow it passed me by. There was a state of Palestine. There's no state of Palestine. So I say, if we begin from reality, if we begin from reality, the foundation stone, the best-selling paradigm is more compelling because it starts from reality. One, one Jewish supremacist state from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. Number two, Whenever you have to deal with the occupation, as you know, you have to deal with all of this kind of obscure law. The Fourth Geneva Convention, what are settlements under international law, what does, it, does human rights law apply, does human international humanitarian law. It's just as you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lawyer's dream. It's a lawyer's dream, this um, international law. When you have as your public position, there's one state from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. It's a Jewish supremacist state. It attaches more value to Jewish life than to non-Jewish life. We clear away the lawyers. They're out of the picture. We clear away all the legalese. We clear away all the legal obfuscation and we present a very simple, stark picture which resonates with a very broad audience because every day they're now hearing about these white supremacist groups in the United States, white supremacy. And they will make the obvious connection White supremacy, Jewish supremacy, they sound pretty close to each other. And Betselem repeatedly stated in its position paper, Israel is, the Israeli apartheid state is based on Jewish supremacy. That was the first sentence, the bold face sentence in its position paper. Personally, I wouldn't bring up apartheid because apartheid ended in 1990. It's already 30 years ago. The new generation, which is the most important one to reach, they will not have heard of apartheid except as in the, you know, some term from the past, like Cold War, uh, mutually assured destruction, Vietnam War. That's all just the hoary past. You also could argue, I think, quite plausibly that what Israel does is far worse than apartheid. 
in some respects, yes, some respects, no. You know, I, I don't, I think it's just so hard to get into the um, balancing act. You could say Arabs in Israel, they have political parties, they have representation in the Knesset. One of the uh, justices in the Supreme Court or High Court of Justice is an Arab. You know, you can make all those sorts of things and, you know, try to mitigate the horrors or say it's not as bad as apartheid, even though Archbishop Tutu said it's much worse than apartheid because of the systematic murderous assaults. But then you could say the fact of the matter is South Africa, to preserve its apartheid regime, killed several million South, uh, Southern Africans in the wars against Mozambique, Angola, and so forth. So the picture is, you know, it's cloudy. I'd rather not go there. I would simply like to, I would say in public, it's a Jewish supremacist state. To do what that Selim does, says, let's look at the immigration laws. Let's look at the land policy. Let's look at the freedom of movement. Let's look at the political participation. They say, if you look at these four indices, it's clearly a Jewish supremacist state. And that's no different than a white supremacist state. It's no different than a Jim Crow state. Uh, I think as a public strategy to, write, to reach people, I would say, with all the, with all the um, uh, advantages of the two-state paradigm in terms of this huge body of law that is in Palestinian favor, um, I would personally, at this point, I, I think I, I think it's wiser, in my opinion to stick with reality, start from reality. Okay, Norman, so last question, along with any other final comments you have, but I imagine you're gonna have people on the Palestinian solidarity side who are gonna hear this from you and agree with you, but they're gonna say that we have been saying this for a long time, but someone like Norman Finkelstein has been telling us that we need to stick to international law. So what has changed for you? Is it just the fact that Beth Selim has come out with this statement? And you think that that is forceful enough to lead to a change in intact? Okay. As always, Aaron, a good question. A good question. I'll say two things on that point. Number one, politics is in no small part, if you're on the victim side, politics is in no small part about trying to persuade public opinion. I, for a long time, rely in my public presentations and in my writing on organizations and investigations which had public standing, public reputation. I would rely on Human Rights Watch. I would rely on Amnesty International. I would rely on human rights organizations locally. I would rely on UN resolutions. I would find persuasive evidence to support my case. And let me just say, Norman, you do it exhaustively as, as a longtime reader of yours, for example, in your book, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom, extensively relying on human rights reports from Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, 
and others to make the case that Israel committed war crimes inside Gaza. Okay. So I do not consider it a small thing that Batsalem came out with this position paper. It is the most reputable of Israeli human rights organizations. Um, and so it's a valuable weapon. It's an ideological weapon. It's a weapon to be used in the battle for public opinion. So you have to make a decision. Should you follow the path blazed by a reputable organization which carries weight in the court of public opinion, or do you not? I would say at this point, the more prudent strategy is to go with that, that path that's been blazed. Number two, let's be clear about what Betselem said. Betselem said at the end of its decision, excuse me, at the end of its position paper, we're not endorsing any political, any particular political position. We're not saying one democratic state. We're not saying a binational state. We're not saying two states. We're just saying right now we have a Jewish supremacist state. They didn't say they support a state of Palestine. They said right now we have a Israeli Jewish supremacist state. And I think that's probably the right way to go, to say to Israel, you want a Jewish state? Okay, fine. Have a Jewish state. But you can't have a Jewish supremacist state. Now, you're going to have to figure out how to reconcile that. But the supremacy has got to go. Now, you know, Aaron, England is technically called an Anglican. It defines itself as an Anglican state. But for all intents and purposes, the Anglicanism does not impinge itself on the life of ordinary citizens. No Muslim in the UK, even though there's a lot of discrimination against Muslims, at least unofficial um, socialist discrimination, uh, the fact of not being an Anglican doesn't get in the way. If Israel wants to call itself a Jewish state, go ahead. You can call whatever you want. But what you can't do is you can't be a Jewish supremacist state. And you have to get rid of that immigration policy. You have to get rid of that uh, land policy. You have to get rid of the blocking of freedom of movement. You have to get rid of the political discrimination. And in my opinion, and here I disagree with Beth Selim in what I wrote about their position paper, the most important thing you have to get rid of, you can't treat Palestinian life as worthless. In the, in the Jewish supremacist state of Israel, in the Jewish supremacist state of Israel, any citizen, any police officer, any military personnel can kill any Palestinian at random with impunity. That is the state of that is the Jewish supremacist state of Israel. Any Israeli, any Israeli, be that Israeli uh, citizen, 
an ordinary citizen, a police officer, or a army personnel, they can kill with complete, total impunity any Palestinian they meet in the street. That's the state of the Jewish supremacist state of Israel. That's got to go. Right. Now, how, you, yeah. how you get rid of it, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. You figure that out. You want your Jewish state? Go ahead. Have your Jewish state. But that's not what B'Tselem said. B'Tselem said you don't get to have a Jewish supremacist state. Got it. And I agree with that. We're going to leave it there. Norman Fickelstein, author and scholar, thank you very much. You're welcome.